All right, hello everyone. We are well into our way on a series in First Peter, um, second week. Uh, last week we covered basically half a verse, uh, who's Peter? We covered four words, well four words in Greek, I think six in English. Uh, this week we're going to cover three times as much, uh, cover a solid verse and a half. Um, to recap last week, Peter is writing a letter to uh, a diverse selection of Christians in Asia Minor. Um, he, they are under a situation of pressure and persecution, and he's writing to encourage them. And he is encouraging them along the lines of who they are, of their identity. Uh, and he's doing it along three particular axes, who God is, who Jesus is, and who they are in light of that and as I said last week, we need to be careful because the idea of identity has a lot of weight in our culture. We come to it with a lot of prepackaged definitions, and we need to be careful when we have something that looms that big in our minds that we don't import those definitions and force them onto the biblical concepts. So last week we looked at the story from Matthew about when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus explains why Peter is called Peter. And talked about how our identities, as we see there, are something that are given to us. Our Christian identity is given to us. It's not something that we create ourselves. That it's something that comes as a whole, not an a la carte selection from which we get to pick and choose as we see fit. And it's something that carries with it a direction. It's more of a script than it is just source material to give us a good start for how we want to remix it. So keep those things in mind as we look this week from Peter to the people he's writing to. It's continuing in those first two verses, this is from 1 Peter, the very start of it. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a pretty standard format for starting a letter in that time. I remember when I was in my 20s and starting reading the Bible for the first time, I found it very weird um, that they lead off with their first name. Um, we're used to dear so-and-so, body, yours truly, our name. Uh, this would be like me writing letters going, Brian, to whom it may concern, blessings, and then the body of the letter. But this is the standard format. Um, we're going to look primarily at who the letter's to, the element between to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion through the end of sprinkling with his blood. We want to know who the people are who Peter wishes that grace and peace may be multiplied to. And there's three broad elements in that address. There's the elect exiles, there's the of the dispersion, and then a list of areas. And then there's three clauses that modify it, according to the foreknowledge, in the sanctification, and for the sprinkling of his blood. Uh, the most concrete of those is the middle one, talking about the physical location of these people. Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Has anybody been to any of those places? Asia? 
<laughs> Galatia. Okay. Um, these areas have not been to any of these regions. These are regions in what is in Asia Minor, mostly in what is modern day Turkey. Uh, kind of got that rectangular shape. It's like the middle half of that rectangle. These various regions cover it. Um, while they might not be the places that roll off the tip of our tongue, they are mentioned various places in the Bible. Um, Galatia is where you find Galatians, which are the people to whom Paul wrote his famous letter. So we know that this church has some history with Paul. Um, Cappadocia and Pontus, when Peter gives his initial sermon at Pentecost, there, because of the festival, there's Jews from various regions there who hear this initial sermon, and two of the regions that are located are Pontus and Cappadocia. So we have people who potentially can trace their lineage all the way back to that first sermon. And then the weirdest one is Bithynia. When Paul was doing his missionary tours, he basically comes up the coast, hits the bottom of Asia Minor, and works his way across the southwest corner of it. When he wants to turn inland, it says in Acts 16 that he is prohibited by the Spirit from entering into Bithynia, basically of turning inland into Asia Minor. So at least in Bithynia, we have a region where Paul did not lay a foundation. So we have a church that Paul didn't minister to. So we have a diverse collection of religious history amongst these people that Peter is writing to. Beyond simply being like a diverse religious background, this is also a diverse geographical area. It covers a huge portion of Asia Minor, and it goes from the coasts up to the highlands. It covers large cities. It covers towns. So it's both diverse in the history of the people and their relationship with Jesus and in terms of geogra geographic and just size of cities. It's also a diverse ethnic area. What I learned was that Galatia gets its name from the Gauls, who conquered it in 275 BC and became the ruling group for that area. The Gauls are probably more famous for us for being the people that Julius Caesar defeated shortly before literally crossing the Rubicon. And that, those battles took place in more closer to modern day France. And that's because the Gauls were Celtic people who, unfortunately he's not here, my visual aid, look more like Thomas than your average Middle Easterner. These are people who had been tall, fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, who are the ruling group of Galatia. And then you have around that, you have more what we would consider traditional Middle Easterners. So you have a selection of people that Peter is writing to that are diverse in their uh, religious background, are diverse in where they live, in the regions they inhabit, the size of the cities, and are diverse in their ethnic backgrounds as well. This is sort of like Peter writing a letter today to the people of San Diego, Orange County, Los Angeles, Barstow, and Ventura. That is a broad selection of people that we, with slight Los Angeles snobbery, occasionally look down upon and see as not the most related to us, different issues they're dealing with in life. But the idea here is that there is such a common thread of what the Christian identity is that, Pe that Peter can address a broad array of people with a message that is applicable across that broad of a background. 
So it's a diverse group, but he adds to this by noting that it, he calls it the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, etc. He isn't simply saying that they are dispersed there, which he is, but he's using a word which is diaspora. By this point, diaspora has a more technical meaning. In the 6th century BC, because of their continual rebellion and disobedience, God uses the Babylonians to send Israel into exile. Israel is sacked. Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon. The city is destroyed. Most of the people are hauled off into Babylon. Others spread out. And even after the return from exile, it isn't just a huge exodus back into Palestine and a return of that to its former glory. The people actually disperse. The Jewish people disperse throughout the Mediterranean region. And that dispersion of people living outside of the Palestinian homeland is referred to as the diaspora. So Peter is making a connection, which he makes even more explicit by ending the letter, referring to Rome as Babylon. So he has both the diaspora leading off and Babylon at the end. But he's making a point, because when Israel was spread out in the Mediterranean, away from their homeland, they had the challenge of being the minority people in a majority culture trying to figure out how to uphold their religious traditions and their identity as a people. So he's not simply throwing away a word here, but he's saying to these people who have been spread out, he's metaphorically drawing a connection to the fact that they too face a challenge of how to uphold their identity and uphold their religious practices as a minority people in this broader culture. So it's not merely that they're geographically diverse, but that they must live faithfully outside of their homeland. They're looking for somewhere else, which ties into those opening words, the elect exiles. We are a people basically found everywhere and composed of lots of backgrounds, but we live in a strange position. And Peter uses this idea of elect exiles as a summary for these people who he's trying to address. But it contains two contrasting ideas, elect and exiles, good and bad. Exiles is not a preferable state that people seek to be in. No one is like, yes, exile me right now. I mean, occasionally that happens, but usually there's deeper issues there. But it's not something that people are seeking to um, have happen to them. Generally speaking, if you are in a state of exile, you are in a bad state. It's that the word that's translated here is a rarer word in the Bible, which, and it's also a hard word to translate, which means if you're reading a different translation, you probably have seen this word translated multiple ways. The NIV uses strangers. The Old King James uses pilgrims. One Bible uses temporary residents. Um, ESV uses exiles. So you can see it's a word that's hard to pin down the exact meaning, but it has this general concept of being a foreigner outside of your homeland in a temporary position. And when, so it's being a foreigner, but we can't think of foreigner purely in a mo modern sense, especially in a modern American sense, because while well, this is politically charged, there is generally an idea that foreigners in America is something that is a temporary state. If a 
foreigner has a child here, the child becomes a citizen. It is something that is continued and there's expectations and desires for assimilation. This is the ancient world where if you were a foreign people and a foreign culture, your children remain foreigners, their children remain foreigners, and so on forever. There was no merging into the, the general populace. You were forever a foreign people, forever a second-class people, forever somebody who was going to have things withheld from you that the majority culture got to enjoy. So this is the foreigner concept, which ties in that exile. This is not a desired state that people are seeking to. And the foreign people are usually longing to go back to the homeland that they are away from for some reason. This is when people were very tied to where they are. So Peter is, in this whole letter, is looking at this question of how does a people who has been spread, who is living as foreigners in a strange land, how do they uphold that ident- their identity? How do they persist and survive as second-class citizens that can be persecuted or feel outside pressures and do not get to t- take part in the whole of the, the main culture? And how do they persist in maintaining their identities? Which is, again, why Peter opens with this idea, because this is a lot of what the letter is about in whole. So it's not something you choose to be in exile, which puts it in direct contrast with elect, which other Bibles translate as chosen. This is about being chosen. And the choosing party in this situation is God, and this gives us Christian hives for a couple of reasons. Um, theologically, hives. Um, we can tend to read the Bible with an individualistic lens. Tend to. We do, as modern Americans, read the Bible with an individualistic lens. And that could make it so we read all, every passage about the individual. And we come to a passage like this, and we read it primarily this and also the foreknowledge of God later in this section, and we read it primarily about an individual's relationship to God. And this becomes a part of the debates about how people get saved, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to sidestep that entire debate because the focus here is not on how any single individual becomes saved. It is about how this group of elect exiles came into being. How did this people come into being? How does the church come into being? The thing that is chosen here is not this person, this person, or this person. It is this body. God has, throughout history, said, these are my people. They have a purpose. These are my people. He is the one who has chosen that. And in this case as well, he is making a choice. Now, the other reason it causes a lot of anxiety for us is we know it's been abused. The idea of the chosen people of God. You don't need to go that deep into our history just as a nation here to see spots where being the chosen people of God has been an excuse for all sorts of abuse. We, yeah. And personally, we also just draw back from this because we are modern Americans who have both egalitarian and meritocratic impulses. And a chosen people of God kicks against both of those. If it's chosen, chosen people by themselves having a elevated group kicks against everything in us that wants to be egalitarian in almost everything. And the idea that people being chosen without merit, which is exactly what happens here, um, 
it's almost anti-merit the way God chooses people. Um, the unimpressive is who he selects, sorry. Um, but that pushes against every impulse we want to have to for, for seeing people rise according to their own merit. This can have the impression of simply being about the aristocratic brats who are in a nice, pampered position as their father's favorite while the worthy languish outside. But we need to read the overall context here. Yes, these are the elect, but the verse, the impulse we often have is to read the verse as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We just skip right past the exiles and focus in on the elect, and that's usually where the abuse starts to come in. These are people who have been elected into a situation of being exiles. The two are tied together. Because they are elect, they are exiles. And they've also been elected as the people of God we know to both be blessed but also to be a blessing. This is not election into a life of leisure and having everything set aside for you. Remember, he's just, he references the diaspora right after this, where we have God's chosen people who because of the, in the way they lived as God's chosen people are cast out of the land they were in. There's not simply a being brought into nice ease, but there is a weight that comes with this election. He said, Peter will say later, if you call on him who's fa as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. The idea of being this people who are elect is being brought into a relationship with God, but it is a relationship that carries with it weight, and it's a relationship that brings about this exile. And we need both of these two ideas held together. If we simply, if we try and ex discard the exile portion of this identity of who we are, we struggle with this world and why we don't fit in the way we would like to. We struggle with the fact that there's things that we can't do or we compromise to fit in better and to make sure we can do and accomplish everything we desire. But at the same time, if we leave out the elect portion, all of this aspect of being exiles just feels like a random hardship for which we are not equipped, as opposed to a people who have been brought into this situation as being exiles by being elect and granted God's favor to persist in that identity. So we are elect exiles. And this idea is crucial to this letter of being elect exiles. This is who this is addressed to. Everything that follows sits going to these people, the elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's why Peter doesn't just go to these people and then go immediately to make grace and peace be multiplied to you, but he has these three phrases that modify it. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there's a nice Trinitarian formation there. If God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. I don't think Peter's trying to make an explicitly Trinitarian point, but 
It follows there. Our being elect exiles is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And as I said earlier, again, this is not an explanation of how individuals are coming into the church. This is how this body was formed. How did the body of the church come to be? And it was according to the foreknowledge of God. That idea, this word foreknowledge, carries with it both an idea of knowing, but also an idea of a plan. If it was simply knowing, you end up with, the verse almost reads, to those who are elect exiles, as God knew what happened in the sanctification of the Spirit for being Jesus Christ, God almost becomes like a person who just happens to know, who likes to tell you that he knew what gift you got him at when it was his birthday. Which also is kind of like, cool. I have no idea what to say to people. that I've done it myself, and I have no idea what to say when people get excited to tell me they knew what the gift was. There's more that we're trying to say about God here than simply that he knew this was going to occur. This verb carries with it, this word, carries with it an idea of a knowledge. An, not only, sorry, a knowledge, but also a plan. You can see it in verse 20 when it talks about the fact that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And it's talking about that in the context of God's saving plan for humanity. That there was a foreknowledge of this person, Jesus, who would do something in accordance with the plan. So it's both a knowledge and a plan. So we have together there the fact that this church, these elect exiles, were chosen for this state in accordance with a plan. That the situation they're finding themselves in is not simply the random happenstance that happened to occur because of other things, but it actually is in accordance with the overall plan. That their situation of being exiles, of feeling outside, of feeling outcast, is not merely something where it's caught, it wasn't exactly how God was thinking this would go, but it's something that he knew would occur. That it's something that's in according with his plan, and it's because they are meant to stand outside. The church is not supposed to simply smoothly move in and simply become exactly like the rest of the culture with no friction whatsoever. That would run contrary to the purposes of God because at that point the church has lost any ability to speak to the culture from the outside. It's lost any prophetic voice it has. It's lost any ability to impact or be a testimony to a God who has come to save. So it's according to the purposes of God that he has created this body to sit uncomfortably occasionally in the cultures in which he has placed it so that he might through it testify about himself and his son. That means the lack of ease you find in this world, the feeling of being apart from it, the frustrations that occasionally come up when interacting with it, are a feature of God's plan and not a bug that we need to try and figure out how to fix. And second, then, there's the sanct- in the sanctification of the Spirit. So how does this happen? It happens in accordance with God's plan in the sanctification of the Spirit. And this is a spot where the Bible is not as precise with its words as we like it to be. We have the nice theological formation, justification, whereby you're saved, 
sanctification, whereby you're essentially cleaned up, and glorification when you reach your final state. And we like the words to have nice technical definitions. The Bible refuses to use them in nice technical ways. Sanctification generally means that idea of the progressive changing of you into being more Christ-like, but it also gets used occasionally to mean more in terms of like a consecration, of being brought in, of being cleaned and set in right relationship. Again, words are fuzzy, and that seems to be the meaning that's at play here. The context would indicate that this is talking not about that we've been in accordance with the plans of God put onto a path of continual sanctification, though we have, but that there was a moment by the Spirit in which we were consecrated and brought into this body. That this body is not something that was born by man's hands, but that it is something that is birthed by the Spirit. So according to the foreknowledge of God, according to the plan of God, through his Spirit, he birthed a church. We see that in Acts in Acts 2 at Pentecost, and we see it through the entire narrative of the Bible. God has, through the movement of his spirit, created a people. And that becomes even more clear when you get to the final clause. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Um, if anybody is into uh, Greek grammatical debates, this is a fantastic clause. Uh, for the rest of us. Um, it's still an interesting clause, but it is the issue is how you translate this, how the genitive tense plays back and forth for these words. How do these ideas relate to each other? Obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. There's a lot of complexities to this, but it comes down to what you're probably looking here is what's referred to as a hindiadis, which I'm struggling, I can, I can write but can't pronounce, hindiatus, which is when you use two words to mean the same thing from a different angle. It's like when you say something is nice and warm. You're not saying both that it's nice and it's warm. You're pretty much saying it's nicely warm. You're coming at one idea through a kind of a poetic use of two words joined by a conjunction. Another, another one that biblically shows up is heaven and earth. When you speak of heaven and earth, you're not simply literally saying heaven and earth. You're talking about the whole of creation through this conjunction of these two ideas. So we likely have the exact same thing here, and the reason I'm saying that is because of the context. These clauses are relating to how this status of being elect exiles and Peter's brought to mind the Jewish culture in which, and the Jewish scriptures that these people know through the use of the diaspora. So what has happened in accordance with the foreknowledge of God and by the Spirit? What have we been sanctified into? We've been sanctified into a new covenant. The elect exiles are members of a new covenant. And how does one come into a covenant? This is Exodus 12. 24. So this would be after the people have been brought out of um, Egypt, that, that place, and they're now confirming the covenant they have with God. And this is Exodus 24, starting in verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. We will be obedient. And then he throws blood on the people. Yeah, it's it's like a messed up Gallagher show. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Yeah. Um, Sorry, distracting myself with that one. Um, The point being, what we have here is this idea of thankfully we don't need to do this. Our obedience to this covenant, our entry into this covenant does not come when, just to be clear, no one's going to be asked to walk forward in the altar so I can throw blood on you. But we are people who have entered into a covenant by the sprinkling of blood. Jesus' blood has been shed. We have been covered in it. And by that, we enter into a new covenant. We become a new people. So according to the plan of God, by the birth of the Spirit, we have been brought into covenant with Jesus through his sacrifice. These, this idea together, the plan of God, the work of the Spirit, the work of Jesus, has brought us to be a people, elect exiles, finding themselves in this world. That's who we are. We are a people brought into relationship with God through the action of God in accordance with the plan of God. And this action has put us into a blessed state. We are a chosen people, a people for his own possession. We get to live in a distinctive way. We get to do it with the empowering of the Spirit. We see our lives and our relationships transformed. We find the peace of God in our hearts. We are in a blessed state. We are an elect chosen people. But that has also put us outside, not completely fitting in the world around us. We are also exiles because of this same action. And our ways of living will be different. And it will run into conflict with the people around us occasionally. Now, we shouldn't seek the conflict. If you find yourself consistently and unendingly in conflict with the world around you, you're probably not prophetic. You're probably a jerk. But if you find yourself in no conflict whatsoever with anything in the world around you, you probably are compromised. And there's probably elements in which you have sanded off corners to try and get the square peg to fit into the round hole. There are cultural phenomenon of which we should not take part. In the ancient world, Christians famously avoided the violent spectacles of the arena and the Colosseum. And at the same time, they avoided the extremely body and sexual theater of the day. And there are certain things that happen in our culture that we should simply opt out of. And I'll leave it between you and God for what those things are. But there are things that we need to opt out of. And if there's nothing you can look around that our culture does, where you're like, I should probably avoid that, something's missing. 
At the same time, there are actions and ways that we should positively walk differently. We should never be a people known purely by what we don't do. Early Christians were known for their generosity and for the ways in which they crossed ethnic and cultural lines that were not meant to be breached. And we should do the same. And that too is going to carry a cost. One of the odd conversations that Beck and I occasionally have is, how on earth do people afford this city? And then they, we remember they don't tithe. There is generosity and giving away of money that will cost us in this age if we're trying to live at the same level as everybody who makes the exact same amount as us. You will not be able to do it. Similarly, crossing lines sounds like something our culture wants to do all the time, but really doesn't. There are people who we know, who, the groups that we run in, who are considered as outsiders, and if you cross that line in a generous way, you will draw the ire of the people, the group you were in formerly. <laughs> I say formerly because you possibly just got kicked out. But we should be willing to cross the lines wherever the Spirit of God calls us to do. We are a diverse people forged of all sorts of backgrounds, cultural, class, ethnic groups, everything. And we should be willing to reach across those lines despite the cost. And as I said, this lack of conformity will not always be accepted. There's a section toward, uh, later in the book where Peter basically alludes to the fact that we won't go along with what, well, sorry, the audience won't go along with everything that the culture wants to do, and that bothers the culture. They simply do not like the fact that you will not take part in the things that we are doing. So there is an expectation of this pressure. And that's who we are. We don't get to pick or choose. You don't get to be elect without being in exile. And if you try and be in exile without acknowledging the fact that you are elect and stand in God's favor, you will burn out and collapse. We need to be empowered because the life we're called to is not an easy one. That's who we are. Who is God in this? What we see in this is we see a God who looks at this world, who sees the mess that we have caused, and doesn't simply say, cool, crumple it up like a piece of paper and cast it over his shoulder to start over again, which he could do without any effort. I have no idea how you actually speak of effort with God. Yeah, but he wouldn't deplete himself at all to do so. He could do so like that. But instead, what he does is he looks at this mess and he says, my plan is to enter into it through my son who will die upon the cross that I might birth a people through which this world can be saved. To spread the message of who I am, to witness and testify to my identity that more people might come to know this and be saved. He doesn't look at our mess, but he makes a plan around it. Sorry, he, doesn't make, he looks at our mess, and he makes a plan to solve it. That's who this God is. So we see who we are. We are elect exiles, 
related to a God who will not leave us alone, but because of his love for this world, will push into it and do what it takes to save us, to bring us into right relationships, to choose and make a people of his own. That's who we are. We are elect exiles according to the plan of God, birthed by the Spirit through the work of Jesus brought into a covenant with him. And it's to those people, it's to us, that Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your person. You are merciful and you are pursuing. Your love drives you to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, help us to embrace our identity as a people whom you have sought. Lord, let that not puff us up, but let us find greater humility in the fact that we were chosen and brought and created as a people because of your mercy and not our greatness. That, we were, that it was done so that we might serve you and serve this world. And Lord, let us know and also embrace that that will make us exiles of this age. That our home is elsewhere. That we await a better day. Lord, let that knowledge also lead us to live, Lord, with a relentless generosity, with a confidence in you, knowing that, Lord, our treasure is in that homeland and that we can hold lightly to everything in this world, doing whatever your spirit calls us to do, serving and loving the people around us. Lord, let us help, help us to embrace both aspects of this reality and to know who you are who have brought it to be. Amen.